Well, it's good to be back with you all. If you want to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 45. Psalm 45 will be our subject this morning, and it is about the royal wedding. It's a description of a royal wedding, namely that which is between Christ and his church, and it corresponds to the Song of Solomon. In fact, one commentator, J.A. Alexander, says the allegorical idea of this psalm is carried out in the Song of Solomon. When we look at the Old Testament, we see that God bears that relationship to Israel, and of course we see that in the New, New Covenant as well. The Lord Jesus Christ, uh, relative to his church, is the basis upon which Paul the Apostle exhorts husbands to do their thing and wives to do their thing in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 5.32, he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, it's an analogy, but it's an analogy not designed to teach us about the nature of Jesus as being eternally subordinate to the Father, but it's an analogy to describe for us the relationship that the church has relative to our blessed God. And it's a wonderful and encouraging thing to consider. So I want to read Psalm 45 beginning in verse 1 to the chief musician set to the lilies a contemplation of the sons of Korah a song of love my heart is overflowing with a good theme I recite my composition concerning the king my tongue is the pen of a ready writer you are fairer than the sons of men grace is poured upon your lips therefore God has blessed you forever Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing, they shall be brought They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. We see the heavens declare your righteousness, your majesty, your glory. We know as well that the scriptures reveal to us your graciousness and your goodness and the redemption of your people. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of our salvation. We thank you that he's the one herein described, that he is most high, most wondrous, most glorious, and most worthy to be praised. 
And we ask that you would be pleased to set him forth now by the power of your Holy Spirit as we consider this psalm. We ask that you would guide our thoughts and our minds and our hearts and that we too would compose songs of love with reference to our blessed Savior. We ask that you would forgive us now for all of our sin and transgression and all those things that darken our minds and understanding. We pray that you would bless this local church. We pray that you'd bless Pastor Kirkpatrick and his wife and children, that they would have a wonderful time of refreshment away. We pray for Cam preaching in Chilliwack, that you would bless him. And all over the earth today, we pray that your word would would run swiftly and be glorified, that it would not return unto you void, but it would accomplish the purpose for which you send it. And we ask these things Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, as we look at this particular psalm, it breaks down into three points. First, the intention of the psalmist in verse 1. Secondly, the description of the king in verses 2 to 9. And then finally, the instruction to the bride in verses 10 to 15. The last two verses return to the intention of the psalmist as far as that is concerned. But I want to look first at the intention of the psalmist in verse 1. Notice the disposition of his heart. After the superscription to the chief musician set to the lilies, a contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. That would be uh, verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible. It is a good thing to understand that that is inscripturated. It is given by inspiration of God. If you're using the new King James above that, you'll see the glories of the Messiah and his bride. That's supplied by the translator. That's a title given to the psalm by the translator. But when you see that superscription or that small print to the chief musician set to the lilies, that is inspired word of God. So technically that would be verse one, but we're going according to the English version. version, So notice the intention of the psalmist in verse 1, with reference to the disposition of his heart. He has come to express his love for and his longing for the Savior King. He says, my heart is overflowing with a good theme. This could also be translated as it boils or it bubbles up and it denotes the language of the heart full and ready for utterance. In other words, he doesn't come to his task with a grudgeful spirit. He doesn't come to his task with sort of a a mindset that is diverted. He comes to his task with rigor, with joy, with relish and with delight. We sang Psalm 122. It says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. How is it for us when we wake up on a Sunday morning? Is it sluggishness? Is it coldness? Is it dryness? Is it a heavy heartedness? Or do we imitate the psalmist and say, I was glad when they said, when we sing these hymns of praise to our blessed savior, again, is it sluggish and is it cold and is it a chore or do we imitate or at least seek by grace to imitate what we find here in terms of the psalmist? My heart is overflowing with a good theme. It's a good theme because of the subject matter. And that's what he expresses in the latter part of verse one. He says, I recite my composition concerning the king my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Now, when you read the Psalms, it covers the gamut of human emotion. It does what typical uh, man-made hymns or man-written hymns don't always do. In the Psalms, we go from Dan to Beersheba, and it, sometimes within the same Psalm, there's sorrow, and there's lament, and there's grief, and there's pain. And then there is this ascent in terms of understanding who God is and finding His grace to be sufficient. 
Some psalms, or at least one in the Psalter, is entirely dark. In other words, it doesn't end on a high note or a a redemptive note. That's Psalm 88. But then it comes into Psalm 89, which is the covenant psalm, and that brings the man of God up to that, that vista of concern with reference to who God is and what he does. In this particular psalm, there's no sorrow. In this particular psalm, there's no lament. In this particular psalm, it is simply a composition concerning the king, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Himself. Again, when you survey the Psalms of David, you'll notice at times that some have historical reference to David. At times, there's a reference to David and David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are those Psalms that are uniquely confined to David's son, and that's uh, Psalm 45 is one of them. In fact, C.H. Spurgeon said, some see, uh, some here see Solomon and Pharaoh's daughter only. Everybody recognizes this is a wedding psalm. So he suggests that the historical interpretation of this is that some here see Solomon and Pharaoh's daughter only, the way they see the Song of Solomon. He goes on to say, they are short-sighted. He says, others see both Solomon and Christ. They are cross-eyed. Well-focused, spiritual eyes see here Jesus only. And I would suggest that that is the proper interpretation concerning Psalm 45. It's a messianic psalm. It is confined to our Lord Jesus Christ. The composition reflects his heart, and he says, My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Again, that connection between our heart and the expression of that heart is obvious in the passage. If we have dull, cold hearts... When they say unto us, let us go to the house of the Lord, our singing will reflect that. Our praise will reflect that. I'm not here to indict you. I think the singing is really good here. I haven't come to discourage you, but rather to encourage you and just to show or evidence or demonstrate that our heart affects the expression therein. If we are cold, if we are sluggish, if we are hard-hearted, then our worship is not going to be the sort of worship that is befitting such a great and holy God. Now, notice, secondly, the description of the king in verses 2 to 9. We'll break this down into two sections. First, the perfections of the king, verses 2 to 5. And then, secondly, the person of the king in verses 6 to 9. And with reference to the perfections or the attributes or those good things about our Lord Jesus Christ, there are three here. Notice, first, the blessing of God's grace upon this king. His supreme fairness. Notice in verse 2, you are fairer than the sons of man. The Hebrew word here is doubled. You are fairer, fairer, or you are beautiful, beautiful. You are the fairest, or thou art more beautiful than all. And I think that, again, captures the the heart of this particular man as he reflects upon how good the Messiah is. Spurgeon, again, says, Jesus is so emphatically lovely that words must be doubled, strained, yea, exhausted before he can be described. Among the children of men, uh, among the children of men, many have through grace been lovely in character, yet they have each had a flaw. But in Jesus, we behold every feature of a perfect character in harmonious proportion. I think he's absolutely spot on. And I think when we compare this particular messianic psalm with, say, the Song of Solomon, how does the bride describe the bridegroom in chapter 5? She speaks of her her beloved as being chief among 10,000. 
That doesn't mean that the 10,000 and first is better than the Savior. It's an idiom. It's a convention. It's a way to express that he is fairer, fairer, that he is more glorious, more excellent than all. She describes him in 5.16 as being altogether lovely, not lacking in any benefit, not lacking in any perfection, not lacking in any virtue, but rather he is altogether lovely. The psalmist is doing that here. He says, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. We know this is true of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does John say in the prologue in John 1? It says that uh, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't mistake John. He's not saying there was no grace and truth in the Mosaic Covenant. He's not saying there's no law in the New Covenant. But rather he is typifying or showing or illustrating what is the unique feature about the Old Covenant. It's the law of God. And the unique feature about the New Covenant is the grace and truth that has come through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Covenant points us forward to him. And the New Covenant realizes that anticipated blessing. And so the psalmist highlights that. Grace is poured upon your lips. Turn to the book of Luke for just a moment to see an illustration of this in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. Luke 4, the Lord Jesus goes to a synagogue and there he opens the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he reads the scripture to them. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. If you're in Luke 4, it's around verse 18. And then at verse 20, it says, Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Now, brethren, these were fair-weather fans. At this point, they recognized the grace upon his lips. Now, when he starts to talk about God's judgment upon apostate Israel, that's when they want to throw him off of a hill. But they did recognize that reality, that what proceeded from his mouth as he opens up the prophet Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, as he reads it, not as about someone else, but as about himself, they saw that this grace was upon his lips So going back to Psalm 45, the psalmist highlights that blessed reality concerning our Savior, the blessing of God's grace. But notice in terms of the perfections of the king, the commitment to God's cause in verses 3 and 4. Notice in verses 3 and 4 in Psalm 45, Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Notice this commitment to God's cause. He's fit and equipped for the task. See, when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ... When it comes to the salvation of sinners, God sends the best. We're going through, uh, right now we're not because it's summertime, but in our Wednesday night Bible study, I think I shared that with you last time I was here, we're going through the book of Leviticus. When the children of Israel in the Old Covenant were told to bring sacrifice to God, what were they supposed to do? Find the worst in the flock? Find the mangiest in the flock? Find the one that was, you know, gimped or limped or, 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 or blind or, or had some other issue or challenge? No, they were to pick the best. 
When God comes to save us from our sins, he, he picks the best, the son of his love, his only begotten son, the son who shares his nature. He sends him into this world, sinners to save. So Christ is equipped for that particular task. And the psalmist on the other side, the, the uh, uh, preceding Christ and his coming, is meditating upon that. He's musing upon that. Notice what he says there in verse 3. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. He is equipped to do the task that God has given him to do. As well, notice the prosperity that is involved in his rule and reign. And in your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ answers to this. Remember before Pontius Pilate, when Pilate says, are you then a king? What does he say? He says, yes, for this cause I was born. So the king comes equipped by his father to do the work of mediation on behalf of all those whom the father had given him for the salvation of sinners and for the condemnation of unjust men, for the damnation of the reprobate. The Lord Jesus is equipped for that particular task. And as he considers the commitment to God's cause, it moves into the triumph over God's enemies. And that's what you see there in verses 4 and 5. In your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. Now, our brother, when he prayed, prayed very encouragingly, prayed very edifyingly, but he prayed specifically for any and all who are not believers to become believers. Now, I've thought about this in our church because that's our practice as well. We don't assume that everybody who comes in is necessarily born again. We don't assume that everybody has saving faith in the Savior. And when we pray for the salvation of sinners, that doesn't mean we know who they might be or we have some sort of crystal ball. But I've often wondered, is that a bit of an uneasy thing for those who are unbelievers? They're sitting there and they're perhaps conscious of the fact that, you know, I'm not saved. I'm not converted. I'm not uh, a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, in the grand scheme of things, if they are uneasy about that, that's not always the best thing. But it is good to ponder that reality and to consider that thought or consider that fact. If you're not rightly related to the Lord Jesus Christ, you might ask the question, well, is he fit? Is he worthy? Is he one that I should give up all? That's what the instructions to the bride is going to come uh, when we follow that out in the psalm. What's, what's the bride told? Oh, yeah, have everything you already have and just add Jesus to your already almost complete life. No, forsake your father's house. Forsake everything. Remember when God calls Abram out of Ur the Chaldeans? What does he say? Leave your home, leave your father, leave your country. Does Abram say, well, I, I'm not sure that I want to do that. Is there an uneasiness about unbelievers that say, well, I'm not sure I want to do that. Now, I'm not the psalmist. I'm not David. I'm not the sons of Korah. I'm not the apostle Paul. But I can tell you this, that the book of God is true. The book of God is absolutely true. And when it sets forth a savior who can save even you, it's absolutely true. There's that scene in Luke's gospel where all the sinners draw near to him to hear him. And Jesus says to them that he does save sinners. He saves like a shepherd who, who, who leaves 99 and goes and finds the one. He goes like a, a woman who loses one coin and seeks out the nine. He saves like that father of the prodigal who runs to that son and falls on him and kisses him. There's an uneasiness about your heart this morning that perhaps you realize you're not a believer. May I commend to you the Lord Jesus Christ in the language of the bride. He is altogether lovely. He is chief among ten 
10,000. He rides prosperously. He issues forth that glorious truth of, of salva uh, salvation by grace through faith. But it's not only that. Notice what it goes on to say. Verse 5, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. It wasn't that long ago that I was here and we looked at Psalm 2, another messianic psalm. And a psalm that cuts both ways. Blessing for all those who trust in him. Blessing for all those who look unto him in faith. But cursing and damnation and reprobation and exclusion from God's holy kingdom for all those who continue to resist. All those who continue to reject. All those who continue to rebel. And if you have that uneasy feeling this morning, may I just say all of us had that at one time? It's not like we fell out of the womb as, you know, Bible-believing Christians. It's not like we were brought up in Sunday school. It's not like we were catechized and, and taught the truth. Everybody in here was a sinner, dead in their trespasses and sins. By God's grace, he reached down. He pulled us out of that miry pit. He gave us the graces of faith and repentance that we may indeed close with our Lord Jesus Christ. But realize the Bible cuts both ways. And this is a particular theme that I think is wanting in the church today. The fact that God does judge. The fact that God does punish. The fact that God does condemn. The fact that the Savior both loves righteousness, but he hates wickedness. And look back at our text. It says, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. This in the context of verse 4. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Turn to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Revelation chapter 19, where we see this writer on the white horse who is the subject of our particular psalm. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 19, at verse 11, it says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. It says, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now notice, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Again, the Bible talks about him breaking or dashing the, 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 the rebel nations like a, a potter's vessel. But here, this sword, where is it proceeding? It's proceeding from his mouth. What's the reference? It's the word of God. It cuts deep. It does the work of the king for saving or for damning. And so that's the emphasis in verse, nine, uh, verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword uh, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his name, uh, on his side, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So you see the psalmist in Psalm 45 and the seer in Revelation 19 are pointing to the self-same Christ and highlighting the self-same truth. He writes prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And in our psalm, why humility? That's an interesting attribute or perfection. Look at verse 4. And in your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. We understand overwhelming force with, ref uh, force with reference to truth and righteousness, but humility? How can he say this of the Savior King who's going to dash the rebel nations to pieces by the rod that he wields? 
I think it points to his first coming. It points to that humility by which we know the the Son of God takes on the nature of man to become our champion, to become the mediator of the new covenant. In our church, we're going through the Gospel of John. John chapter 12, last week we saw the triumphal entry as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. What happens when Jesus comes into Jerusalem? The people of Israel take Psalm 118. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord the king of Israel. Well, what does Jesus do? Jesus receives that. Jesus sits on the back of the donkey to show that Zechariah 9-9 prophecy. And then it says, according to John, who includes himself in this, the disciples didn't understand this until later after Jesus was glorified. What does that mean? It means that they assumed that the first coming of the Messiah would be a top-down imposition of overwhelming power. But that's not what the case was. In the first coming of Jesus, he takes on our humanity. He lives for us. He dies for us. He's raised again for us. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. The second coming, it will be overwhelming. It will be imposition. It will be forceful, to be sure, when he comes as king of kings and and lord of lords. But in that first coming, it's marked by humility. When he takes on our humanity, he is, in fact, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because that's the means by which he saves his people from their sin by living for us, by dying for us, and by being raised again for us. So this truth, humility, and righteousness are absolutely crucial in terms of the nature of the Savior. Davis makes this observation. He says, we must catch the vision of the faithful and true sitting on the white horse, the one who judges and makes war in righteousness. He says, no mild God or soft Jesus can give his people hope. It is only as we know the warrior of Israel who fights for us and sometimes without us that we have hope of triumphing in the muck of life. Now, brethren, I think that's absolutely spot on. We've got a lot of muck of life. I'm not just talking about what's happening out there, not just about what's happening in the families, but what's happening in our own hearts. Do you ever reckon? Do you ever reflect upon? And do you ever realize, man, I've got big problems. And I'm not talking again about the Trudeau government, though that's definitely one of my problems. I'm not talking about children and grandchildren, though those are problems. I don't mean in a bad way. I want them converted. I want them walking in the truth. But I've got problems in my own heart. What is it that lifts us out of that depth? What is it that gives us that, that sureness and that comfort and that stability? We see it in Psalm 130. Out of, the, out of the depths I have cried to thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. He ponders the great justice of God. He says in Psalm 130 at verse 3, If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Have you been there? Have you contemplated that reality? And I'm not talking about as an uneasy unbeliever. I'm talking about a believer who goes to a good church, who sits under a faithful ministry, who probably reads good books, who listens to good sermons outside of this church, who knows their Bible, who knows good confessional theology. Have you ever reflected upon the fact that if thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But what happens? He says, but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. See, the Psalms afford that, that, that harbor for the soul. The Psalter affords that, that stronghold for the soul. And that's what the, 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 the psalmist is doing here. He rides prosperously. Whatever you may witness in terms of the muck of life out there, whatever you may witness in terms of the muck of life in your own heart, whatever you may witness in terms of the difficulties associated with life in this present evil age, 
Be still and know that God is God. Be still and know that Christ is upon the throne, that he executes the vengeance of God against all of his enemies, and that he brings blessing to all of his people. So you see now why the psalmist says, my heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. It's a good theme because it's about Christ. It's a good theme because it's about the one who rides prosperously in truth, humility, and righteousness. So he describes those perfections. But when it comes to our Lord Jesus Christ, we know he's unique. I've already alluded to that fact. The Son of God takes on our humanity in order to live for us, to die for us, and to rise again for us. Does the psalmist appreciate that facet of who Jesus Christ is? That's exactly what he does in verses 6 to 9. Notice the person of the king. He points first to the divine nature of the king, the divinity of the king, the godhood of the king. When I was in the Air Force, there was a, a, a lawyer on our base and he was a, a, a big guy, not that I would have ever thought to fight him, but he was a big guy. But I remember being in his office one time. I, I wasn't there as a criminal. I was in military police. So we worked with them from time to time. You might be thinking, why was he in the, the lawyer's office on a military base? But he had a coffee cup and it says, my judge will beat up your judge. Obviously, somebody gave that to him, right? My judge will beat up your judge. Well, if you saw this fellow, you'd say, absolutely Positively, this guy could handle himself in whatever brawl he would face. See, with reference to Christianity, our God will beat up all other gods. Our God will trounce all competitors. Our God decimates and devastates the idols of men. This is why there's two psalms specifically dedicated to mocking idolatry. Psalms 115 and 135. What does it say concerning the idol? They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They've got mouths, but they don't talk. Why does the psalmist do that? It's a psalm of mockery. It's kind of like Elijah at Mount Carmel. Remember the God contest at Carmel? Whichever God answers by fire in terms of the sacrifice, he's the one to whom we owe subjection, the one to whom we owe worship and adoration and honor. What does Elijah say when he mocks those prophets of Baal? Where's your God? And, and brethren, he had to have had a smile on his face. I'm, I'm against this concept that everybody in the Bible walked around like they ate lemons. When Jesus says, you strain out the gnat and you swallow the camel, at least the kids would have been laughing about that. But Elijah says that. Where's your God? Is he meditating? Is he busy? Is he, is he in the latrine? That was a knee slapper. That was funny. Why does he do that? He's mocking idolatry. The prophet Isaiah from like 40 on mocks idolatry. He points to the Babylonians. What happened with the Babylonians? When their God fell off the cart, they'd have to pick the God back up and put it on the cart. Have you ever thought about that? If you have to pick your God up, you've got the wrong God. The blessedness for us is that our God picks us up. The blessedness for us is that our God stabilizes us. The blessedness for us is that our God keeps us and preserves us and protects us. So our God can beat up any competitor. And I think that's what the psalmist is pointing out when he describes the perfections of the Savior. Notice he points to the divine nature of the king in verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of, your, of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. 
Where does the, the apostle, I think it's Paul, in the book of Hebrews go to point out the superiority of Jesus Christ? That's what the book of Hebrews is about. Christ is superior to the angels. Christ is superior to the prophets. Christ is superior to Moses. Christ is superior to Joshua. Christ is superior to Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. Why do you think he's doing that? Because the Hebrew believers were being tempted with renouncing Christ and going back to the prophets. Not that we should have no truck with the prophets. Or going back to Moses. Not that we should have no truck with Moses. Or going back to the Levitical priesthood. We certainly shouldn't have truck with that. So the apostle sets forth the superiority and supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where do you think he goes to do that? He goes to Psalm 45 in Hebrews 1.8 to indicate that Christ is divine. He is the only begotten son of the father who has the same nature of the father. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the father, the word or son, and the Holy Spirit, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. And so when the psalmist is musing on the glory of Jesus Christ from that anticipatory place, he sees the divine nature of the Redeemer King. John 1 starts his gospel, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He then goes on to verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he goes on to chapter 1, verse 29, when he highlights the work of the Redeemer. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's important for John that we know who the Redeemer is that's going to take away the sin of the world. Well, the same is true with reference to the psalmist here. When his heart is overflowing with a good theme, when he recites the composition concerning his king, when his tongue is the pen of a ready writer, isn't it imperative that he considers that beautiful facet of the one who's altogether lovely and chief among 10,000? Our Savior is like no other Savior. Our Savior is the unique link between heaven and earth. Our Savior is the yea and amen of, of all the promises of God Most High. And that's what the psalmist indicates here. Spurgeon says, they are spoken of the Son of God. This language, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He says, these words are spoken of the Son of God, who is truly and properly God, the true God and eternal life, as appears by the names by which he is called, as Jehovah and the like, by his having all divine perfections in him, by the works which he has wrought, and by the worship which is given unto him, and to whom dominion is ascribed, of which the throne is an emblem. Do you see that as he's composing this theme? And I'm sure you've heard this a little bit over the last couple of years in the preaching of Pastor Mike. Every time I come here, I say essentially the same thing. I mean, we had a Saturday morning uh, study session prior to the book we just finished. It was all about the Trinity, all about understanding who our God is. See, the church today wants to behold their God. But they want to behold their God as simply a servant. What, what does he do for me? What does he confer upon me? What are the benefits that I enjoy in terms of God's provision? I'm not suggesting that's necessarily wicked. I think we all do that to some degree or other. But we need to behold our God at the level of nature. Who is our God? He is this triune God, one true and living God who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, again, this isn't something confined to the baptismal formula in Matthew chapter 28. It's all throughout Scripture. Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it's about the triune God. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created. The Spirit is brooding over the waters in, in verse 2. When God comes to create, how does He do that? He does it by His Word. 
The psalmist in Psalm 33, 6 interprets that as the triune God. I mean, he doesn't come out in a Nicene way and say that, but he highlights that reality. Father, Son, and Spirit right there in Genesis chapter 1. Huh. And why is it that so few in the Christian church today, I don't know, maybe there's a lot more than I can anticipate or number, but how is it that we're not too concerned about this? When the sons of Korah compose their theme, when, they're, when they're, 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 the tongue is a ready writer and they ponder the divinity of the king, this seems like a good place for us to stop for a moment and ponder. Spurgeon said, the psalmist cannot restrain his adoration. Excuse me. I told my wife, it's going to be very hot in their building. And even tonight, it's going to be, don't, don't let that keep you away. No, come even if it's hot. I think there's a, a special blessing. I'm kidding. A special blessing pronounced on those that are really hot. The psalmist cannot restrain his adoration. His enlightened eyes see, uh, eye sees in the royal husband of the church, God. Brethren, would you ever go to Psalm 45 with the Jehovah's Witness and say, this is the divine Savior. You should, because again, that's where Paul goes in Hebrews 1 when he wants to stress the superiority of our blessed Savior. So he says, the psalmist cannot restrain his adoration. His enlightened eyes see in the royal husband of the church, God. God to be adored. God reigning. God reigning everlastingly. Blessed sight. Blind are the eyes that cannot see God in Christ Jesus. So back to verse 6, notice it not only underscores the divinity of the king, but the eternality of his kingdom. Your throne, O God, is what? It's forever and ever. Again, this is an encouragement in very strange days in which we live. I don't know where you're at politically. I don't think it's necessary for me to know where you're at politically. But at some point, when you look out at the world around you, you've got to feel a bit of uneasiness. I'm sure that's not unique to the 21st century in, in, in Western civilization. I'm sure there's been a, 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 an uneasiness about men throughout history. But what is it that settles that, settles that uneasiness? It's the fact that these are temporary kings, Temporary empires, temporary authorities, temporary rulers. And I'm not just talking about the, the blessedness or the lack or the need for, you know, term limits. Take Manasseh in Old Covenant Israel. Now, the chronicler points out some good things about him. But in the kings, there's nothing good about Manasseh. And, and you know what happened for Manasseh? He reigned for 55 years. Imagine that. I mean, by four years, we're done, right? Can we vote this guy out? Isn't there a clause to fire him or remove them? I mean, what, what is this? And then they, they get a second term. Or eight years. Imagine 55 years. But imagine that's a drop in the bucket. Imagine that's a blip on the screen of history. Imagine the eternality of the king and the kingdom that we enter into. Isn't this one of the blessed marks in Luke chapter 1 in the announcement of the coming king? What does it say? Of his reign, there will be no end. When you get to the book of Revelation, it's not temporary. When we sing that hymn, when we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Again, 10,000 is a convention. 10,000 just means a lot. 
It's an eternal kingdom. And that's what the psalmist is highlighting here. Whatever happens in terms of the body politic, whatever kings rise up, whatever emperors rule, whatever government is in play, they are temporary. They will be brought to nothing. They will be uh, frustrated. They will be brought down and cast down. Your throne, O God the Son, I'm glossing there, is forever and ever. And then notice the equity of his kingdom. We hear that a lot, right? Equity. It's unfortunate that equity is Marxism in modern speak, but in terms of equity, who brings the equity? It's our blessed Christ. It's our blessed Savior. Notice a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. It is equitable. It is right. It is just. In the prophet Isaiah chapter 11, it speaks of him not judging based on the ear or the eye. There was a certain expectation in terms of messianic expectation where they thought Messiah might actually be deaf, where he might actually be blind. We get this sort of a concept when we look at Lady Liberty. Her eyes are blindfolded. Why? Because she's not supposed to judge based on one's wealth or lack of it. She's not supposed to judge based on one's economic status. She's not supposed to judge based on one's skin color or ethnicity. She's supposed to judge based on, I know this is going to be odd, but she's supposed to judge based on righteousness. What is good? What is uh, 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 right and true? And that's the way our blessed Savior conducts the affairs of his kingdom. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And then notice, it goes on to highlight the humanity of the king. So there's a bit of a link there. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Again, brethren, it's not wrong to hate. It's wrong to hate the right, uh, uh, wrong things. It's not wrong to hate evil, right? Proverbs chapter 8, the fear of the Lord is what? To love and court evil? No, it's to hate evil. Well, you Christians talk about hate once in a while. I don't think we're talking about it enough. Honestly, no, I'm sure there can be abuse and we can go nuts and we can be, you know, terrible and all that sort of thing. But what do you do in a society where they, they, they murder babies? In a society that traffics children, in a society that, that mutilates children, I, I don't know. What, what, what's supposed to be the lovey-dovey response there? Is that supposed to be warm and fuzzy? Isn't there a sense where we're supposed to imitate the Savior who loves righteousness and what? Hates wickedness? It, isn't that part of the sort of complex of Christian emotion that we're supposed to engage? I think the psalmist in Psalm 119 strikes three notes that, as Christians, we ought to pursue. He speaks about indignation taking over his heart because the wicked do not keep the law. There's an anger there. It's a righteous anger. He also speaks of disgust. He sees the wicked, and they engage in lawlessness, and it, and it disgusts him. But he also says, rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. You say, well, Pastor Butler, how do we do that? I don't know. When you figure it out, let me know. But that it's supposed to be, I, I'm convinced. I'm convinced that as the people of God, we are to be a loving people. We are to shine as lights in a crooked and perverse generation. We're to hold forth the word of truth. But we ain't doing anybody any favors by saying, well, you know, God is only ever love. And there's no judgment. There's no wrath. There's no scepter of righteousness. Do whatever it is you want. And he'll just accept you as you are. Now, on the one hand, we know there's a vein of truth in that. He does accept us as we are. Or we'd never be saved by grace through faith. But when he accepts us as we are, it's because he's caused us to be 
be born again. It's because he's given us the graces of faith and repentance. It's because he's made us alive together with Jesus Christ. But to suggest or say to people there's salvation in Christ Jesus, but go ahead and continue to mutilate children? Brethren, there ought to be a hatred of wickedness in the hearts of God's people. And that is an imitation of the divine Savior. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Now note the humanity of our Savior. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So we're speaking about God the Son, verse 6, God the Father in verse 7. So your throne, O God the Son, who has the same nature as the Father. And then in verse 7, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. This captures what our confession describes in chapter 8 at paragraph 2. We call it the hypostatic union. The two natures in the one person. And the confession says, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. That's good news. Uh, You know, we we talk about good news. Yes, the salvation from our sins. Absolutely, positively. That salvation from our sins doesn't occur in a vacuum. That salvation from our sins is from the Savior who gave himself for our sins. And the fact that that Savior shares our humanity or takes on or assumes our humanity. He has become in all points like us, the, 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 the apostle says, yet without sin. The Lord Christ identifies with us. He is, in fact, or was, in fact, in his first coming, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The fact that our blessed Savior is who is described here ought to be very encouraging for us. Notice the nature, or or rather the the, the beauty of the king. Verse 8 says, "All All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. You, you, you've seen these royal weddings. I think the last one was, was it Megan and Harry or somebody after them? I mean, you'd have to pay me a ton of money to get me to sit there for five seconds to watch, you know, these people do what they're doing. It's just an exercise in futility. And I think history has, has confirmed my position, at least in that one. But uh, with reference to the royal wedding, what, what do they do? They look at the bridegroom, look at him all decked out, look at him uh, attended to by his entourage, look at the the royal coach, look at the the crown. And then they point to the bride uh, bride herself, look at what she's wearing. I mean, people write articles about this stuff. People write, you know, uh, uh, news stories about what what the gown was and what she was wearing and what she was scented with and, and, and just the pomp and the majesty and the regal glory. You see what the sons of Korah are doing? They're describing that. They're evidencing the same sort of a thing, that, that convention that, that we as creatures look upon other creatures, and we say, wow, that's, a, that's an impressive feat. When we come to this, this is what the psalmist is doing. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have been made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. 
If one is so glorious, one should be gloriously attended. If one is so worthy, one should be recognized as being worthy. And that's what the psalmist is doing here, describing the attendance of the king as he comes to this royal wedding. And that brings us to the instruction to the bride. Notice in verses 10 to 15, the scene shifts. He goes from composing this theme to verse 10. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. There's a necessity of repentance. There is a necessity to leave the wicked to come to the Savior. Now, we know that's a grace. We know it's granted by God. Dead sinners can't repent. Dead sinners can't make an overture toward God. Repentance is the other side of the coin of faith. These are saving graces given by God, enabling us to respond. Nevertheless, we must respond and listen what the psalmist says. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. In other words, pay attention. This is important information. Whatever else you've got going on in this coming week, whatever deals you've got to make at work, whatever uh, deadlines you've got, whatever things going on in your family, that all can wait. Put your phone on silence. Put your heart on silence and listen to the psalmist as he exhorts you to specific responsibility in terms of a response to this king. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. The heaping up of four verbs of command, Motir says, places enormous emphasis on the bride's need to put the past behind and find her all in her new relationship. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. The bride must forget. The bride must renounce. The bride must leave and the bride must go to meet her new man. You're going to have weddings in this church. You're going to have weddings in other churches. And I've done a few. I have never been at a wedding where the, the bride or the, the bridegroom has his girlfriend when he's there with the bride to be. We would say that's outlandish. That's insane. That's nuts. That's batty. Get rid of the old girlfriend. I mean, there's other things we could say at that point because it got way too far. You see, that's what the psalmist is saying with reference to his response to the the Lord Jesus. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. Go back to Genesis 12. I alluded to it. It's something we should get before our minds. We think about Abraham. We think about the Abrahamic covenant. We think about how that relates to new covenant, how that relates in terms of circumcision and baptism. Let's just for a moment think practically about Abraham. Abraham was an idolater in the... In, in Chaldea. We know that you'll see it when you get to Joshua 24 in the scripture reading. Abraham's father was an idolater in Chaldea. Ergo, Abraham was an idolater. See, you fathers don't let your kids erect shrines to Molech in your, in your house, do you? You'd say, no, you're not going to do that. You don't get a baby Baal to bow to. You as fathers command your children. You as fathers, and again, command in terms of the true and right religion. Well, what do you think Terah did with reference to Abraham? Oh, yeah, you go ahead and worship Yahweh. This is a, you know, this is a multi-polytheistic home. You do whatever it is you want. Abraham was an idolater. He was committed to other gods. His allegiance was elsewhere. And notice the call that Yahweh puts upon him in Genesis 12.1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country 
from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. See, when you get to Matthew 16 and Jesus says, if anyone will not deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, that's not new. God has always been specifically and particularly jealous for his own glory. That's not a changing sort of thing, Old and New Testament. Well, you know, there was a lot more levity or leeway back in the Old Testament. Now, when Yahweh calls to Abram, it's get out. Again, we don't usually do this, but think about it. You're Abram. You sell cars. You got a wife. You got kids. You got a, a, a family. And God of Israel says, leave all that. Just, just forget it. Abandon it. Forsake it and come and serve me. There's a lot of allegiance. There is an expression of faith. There is great grace as God has given or that God has given to this man. But it's get out of your country from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Now, that doesn't come without attendant promise and blessing and all those sorts of things. Same thing with Jesus. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Well, that's that's miserable. Really? Is it miserable? Do you see the the, the apostles in Acts chapter 5? They get scourged, they get whipped, they get beaten. And when they leave there, do they say, oh, that's miserable. Poor us. Woe is us. I'm going to put a Facebook, you know, post up about how miserable I am for the cause. No, they they rejoiced. Why? Because they were worthy. Uh, 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 uh. They counted themselves worthy of being, being shamed, being scourged, being whipped, being beaten, being abused for the Lord Jesus Christ. What Jesus gives far surpasses or far outweighs whatever it is we think we might have. So never look at this repentance that you find in the Bible as having to leave your joy and leave your happiness and leave all your blessing to come to misery. No, coming to Jesus is that blessedness encapsulated. The service of Christ, the the psalmist elsewhere can say, but as for me, the nearness of God is what? It's my good The the psalmist in Psalm 23 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the the, the most destitute of circumstances, the most desperate of circumstances, though I walk through it, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. You're, You're with me in the midst of that valley. See, it's not that I give up everything for Jesus. Those old songs, I have decided I'm going to give up everything and follow Jesus. Have any of you ever thought of it that way? I gave up everything, and I'm now miserable as a, as a son of God. No, it's just the opposite. You may be miserable, but there's other reasons for that misery. You say, praise God, I'm now a child of the king. Praise God that I'm not doing those things that used to sort of characterize me. Praise God that I'm not eating the pig food anymore. Consider the prodigal son. Do you think when the father laid the the garment on him, when when the father put the ring on his finger, there was ever a time subsequent to that that he said, you know, I really wish I was back in that hog pen. Boy, that slop that they were feeding those hogs with looked so good. Oh, absolutely not. This is the prophet Isaiah's uh, 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 exhortation in Isaiah 55. Why do you spend your wages on that which does not satisfy? Why are you throwing away your life? Why are you throwing away your money? Why are you throwing away your energy and your effort and your, your time? Why would you do that? Come to the Lord God Most High where there's abundance. Come to the Lord God Most High where there's everything. What does Jesus say in John 10? I came that they might have life and that they might have it miserably. I think a lot of Christians interpret it that way, that they might have it abundantly. 
What does Paul say in Ephesians 1? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So it's not just subsequent to the the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but in terms of anticipation, the psalmists, the prophets, the, the patriarchs, they were looking forward to what Christ brings to his people. And that's the, the thrust here. Listen, O oh daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also in your father's house. And then notice in verse 11, so the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. I don't have a problem at some level about God condemning sinners. I don't have a problem at some level with God, you know, sending men, women, boys and girls to hell for eternity for their sins against him. Where I think I struggle is with the grace of God, with the fact that he doesn't do that to every single one of us. This is why the prophet Micah in Micah 7 says, who is a God like you? He doesn't go on to sort of fill in the blanks by saying who judges his enemies, who frustrates the plans and counsels of men, who who casts his enemies into the depths. That's not why the prophet says, who is a God like you? He says, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. The fact that the king desires our beauty. Now he beautifies us. He clothes us. He makes us fit for that wedding day. But the fact that he, he, he wants us. It is amazing grace, isn't it? Remember that bit in John chapter 4? God is seeking those who worship in spirit and truth. See, on Sunday, it's not just you seeking after God. It's God seeking after true worshipers as well. We think about the Lord's Supper as service, right? We, we, we refer to it in that way, Lord's Supper service. How do we usually think about that? that, that that's our service to God. No, God's the householder. God invites us to the table. God provides the bread and the wine so that we can remember the son of God who lived and died and was raised again for us. It's it's his service to us. Why is that? Because he's seeking people who worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what the psalmist says here. So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. Again, he is the one that clothes us. And that's what goes on there in verses 13 to 15. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. We already know the royal son is. The first half of the psalm is about him, the divine one who assumes our humanity to engage in this rule through his scepter of righteousness. We know he's worthy. We know he's glorious. Now look at verse 13. The royal daughter is all glorious within her palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. How did she get that clothing? She didn't go to a tailor. She didn't go to Walmart. She didn't go to, you know, whatever place you buy garments. She came by grace to the king who clothes her. The prophet Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Zechariah 3, 4. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. Matthew 24, the parable of the wedding feast. Who gets kicked out? The one who doesn't have the royal garment. Who doesn't have the royal garment? The one who hasn't been begraced by the the royal son. 
Philippians 3, not the language of clothing in terms of garments, but the language of clothing in righteousness. The apostle in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, uh, he, he rejoices in this righteousness, not according to the law, because Paul understood himself well, just like all of us do. If it's about law and my approach to God, I, I'm going to be damned forever. But clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and received by faith alone. So Christ beautifies his bride, and that's what the psalmist ex uh, 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 extols here. Notice verse 14. So, so she shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. I'm going to wind this down right here. Uh, again, verses 16 and 17 return to the intention of the, the psalmist. So instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. He moves from this composition on this goodly theme to pro, uh, proclamation throughout the ages to all nations under heaven. But let's just end on what verse 15 says. And I've alluded to this many times in the sermon thus far. You've probably seen that phrase or heard that phrase. You know, when I'm pointing at you, I've got three fingers pointing at me. I woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. I don't know why. I mean, my dear wife probably thought I was a bit odd. And at some point I hugged her and said, no, nothing wrong. It just happens, right? Do you ever get that? Am I the only guy that ever, you know, just kind of wake up feeling, there's no reason. I didn't get shot in the foot. I didn't have an animal die. didn't have a child die. didn't, you know, hurt my anything. You just kind of get that way. And then you're struck with the Psalms. You're struck with the Word of God. You're struck with the household of God. And what hopefully happens, your, your heart is elevated. Your heart starts to, to leap and your heart starts to joy. You, you understand, I was, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, there's probably a couple of ways that we can interpret that. Perhaps I was glad because I was so miserable. I was so sorrowful. I was just depressed. Something, something was off. So, so there's remedy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's celebration in the house of the Lord. There's, there's a lifting up in the house of the Lord. Look at what the psalmist says with reference to the presence of the king. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. If a bunch of dumb people celebrate a royal wedding that happens in England, what should the blood-bought children of God get when they come into the presence of the Most High? Gladness and rejoicing entering into the king's palace is not a fool's errand. It is the, the, the purpose for which we've been created. It's why we exist. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Hopefully today your hearts are going to enjoy your God. Hopefully tomorrow your heart is going to enjoy your God. Hopefully for the rest of your life, come what may, hardship, trial, difficulty, affliction, and there's no shortage of those things in this veil of tears. But with reference to that, there's always hope. There's always sunshine. There's always the glimmer of God's good grace. While we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we have that certain objective uh, conviction that it's through it. We're not going to die there. We're not going to stop there. We're not going to be buried there. We're going to come through the other end. Not because we're good. Not because we're victorious. Not because we've achieved 
but because thou art with me. Thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. Brethren, be encouraged, be glad-hearted, and rejoice in the goodness of God Most High. And if you're not a Christian, if I had the ability to compose a psalm, I'd say, no, read Psalm 45. Read Psalm 45. It does everything that a needy sinner needs with reference to the presentation of who this king is, who this Jesus is, and how this Jesus saves his people from their sins. Believe in him, and you will have everlasting life. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the Lord's day. We thank you for the Lord's house. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the brothers and the sisters here. I pray for your rich blessing upon them. I pray that with gladness of heart, with rejoicing, they would gather each and every Lord's day as they come to praise our triune God. As well, we pray that you would flood our hearts with that joy and gladness in the midst of the trials of life, in the midst of the difficulties and the hardships. On the one hand, it is a bit easier when we come and we're with people that we know and that we love and we're singing familiar songs and praising our, our great God together. So Lord, help us both in the public worship of God and in private and in families and help us to be faithful unto you. And we pray through Jesus Christ, our